I have a really special treat for you this week. I'm bringing you an interview with Elise Muselis. She is a author of the book Food Story, podcaster of the podcast Once Upon a Food Story, and creator of the course Rewrite Your Food Story. You're going to absolutely love this conversation. Elise has a fresh perspective and take on our relationship with food in our bodies and how we can create, write, and rewrite our own food story. So let's dig in. Elise, I'm so glad to see you again. It's great to catch up. It's so good to see you. And thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. It's my pleasure. I know we're very much aligned in our thoughts and feelings and approach to food. And so it's it's great to have you. And I just want you to start by sharing how you got into the space, because this was not your, your first rodeo, was not your first profession, I should say. I want to say that I love that you said feelings, thoughts and feelings, because it's so unique to hear a physician, you know, bring in the feelings component. And that's my favorite thing about the work that you do is it's science, but you also really hone in on the emotions about me. I grew up in L.A., which I know that's very telling uh, my interest in health and wellness. And my first career was actually in law. I came to Washington, DC, went to law school and um, practiced immigration law. I love helping people. It got really hard though, with the laws to keep families together. Mm. And then I had a family of my own and I just, I, at some point I just felt like I'm not, I'm not, feeling as comfortable doing this work. And I just always, always been interested in health, wellness, food, what food does to our body, to our mood. And so I ended up pursuing a second career. And now I am certified in holistic nutrition and eating psychology. And like you, I really love to get into the mindset of what like, you know, inspires people, what, you know, what are their thoughts around food and body and otherwise? And the the psychology part is really like of the most interest to me because I think oftentimes that's the missing piece of the nutrition puzzle. Yeah, I just want to pick up on the fact that I knew you were a lawyer. I did not know that you worked in immigration. And it's really fascinating because in my mind, like immigration is just a couple steps away from family, as you mentioned, which is mm-hmm. a couple steps away from food. I feel like it's so related. Yeah, actually, it really is. And it was it was so interesting for me to learn about like where people were from and their culture. And of course, you know, food came into the conversation. But at the same time, that made it extra challenging when you were had one parent and they couldn't bring their family over, you know? And mm. at some point the laws changed and became so much more stringent. Yeah. So, yeah, but you're, you're right. And also for me, from my perspective, I just really like bringing people together and helping people, you know, just feel whole and happy. And so finding a home, whether it's a new home, you know, or a return to home is always that that makes you feel like yourself again. Well, we'll talk about your book, Food Story, but talking about food stories, you know, when I think about food, my mind always goes first to my own mother, who is a working mom. My memories of her is coming home from work with bags in her hands and literally slipping off her heels, heading into the kitchen and sauteing stew meat with turmeric. 
And so my food story really begins there. And then also, you know, being of Persian, Middle Eastern background and Jewish culture, we practiced Shabbat, not in the strict sense, but in terms of the traditional sense of, of gathering around a Friday night meal. So much of that Friday night meal was part of our family story. It was mm -hmm. a non-negotiable time that family came together around food. And it's something that I practice to this day with my own family. It's so funny when you were telling me just now, I was wondering, did you, did that like become a part of your own current family situation? And do you, do you remember and think about how you felt as a child, whenever you're, you know, gathering your own kids around the table? It is very much a part of, I feel like it's ingrained in my DNA. And, you know, I don't cook Persian food regularly. It's kind of heavy to eat on the regular, but Friday night, I have to cook Persian food. During COVID, you know, we weren't gathering the way we used to at the beginning. I took a pass a couple of times and my kids seriously called me out on it. They were like, uh, no, you are cooking Persian food, whether we gather or not. And so I do believe that it's become part of their food story as well, which is so beautiful. That's amazing. You'll see that they, when they go off, they'll start doing things that they learn from you, just like you did. I mean, my sons both shop at the farmer's market and cook on Sundays. And I see, you know, my food story that's being passed on to them. It's really nice. And now when, when I'm with them, they cook for me, which oh. is also really nice. Yes, for more than, yeah, for multiple reasons, right? That's right, <laughs> right. But I feel like one of the biggest gifts that you can give to your kids is to pass on that independence in the kitchen. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we're talking, I'm feeling this pull of perhaps this is alienating some of the listeners or perhaps this feels intimidating because I know in having conversations with a lot of my own friends and a lot of my colleagues who are busy professionals, busy physicians, they don't feel the agency or the time to cook in the kitchen. And I always tell, you know, I always tell my patients, you don't have to be Martha Stewart. Right. You know, it's not all or nothing. We can make small, you know, take time for small things and start to incorporate them in our day to day that are, that is the beginning to the, right. 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 Exactly. Or maybe it's, you know, like having everybody participate. So then like the, the it's not all on one person, but it becomes a family activity and then mm. it's fun. And then there's less pressure on you, you know, the having the chef role or, you know, the cook having to make the perfect meal for the family. But it's really, I think when we step back, it's really just about having that connection and having that time together because it's, it's so much less about the food, you know, yeah. than it is about being together. Yeah. And also you, you're right. You don't have to make it complicated. I mean, the simplest meals are often, you know, the most satisfying too. Yeah. And so I, I guess my advice would be just to start, you know, even like when I was teaching my kids to, to cook, they started with a smoothie or a quesadilla, you know, and then suddenly, you know, now they're cooking for themselves. They make bowls and all sorts of things, but it didn't, it didn't all of a sudden say, I'm going to cook and, and then make three course meals. I also think you mentioned time. And of course, time is our biggest boundary. It's our biggest barrier. But I think part of the problem is that we have um, taken on this notion that it shouldn't take time. 
you know, like we know that it takes time to uh, do certain household chores, or we know that it takes time to take care of paperwork around our kids' schools, or it takes, you know, certain things take time. And because the expectation is set that it should take time, we may do it begrudgingly, begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? it. Something like that. Yeah. But we do it because the expectation is there that we ha- that we have to spend time, right? But I feel like these days when it comes to food and DoorDash and takeout and take-in and all those other things, we have created the expectation that cooking shouldn't take time, which is really part of a bigger conversation that our self-care doesn't require time or that we are not worthy of the time to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's part of a much bigger conversation that yes, even if you're a physician or a lawyer or a stay-at-home mom, or you have kids or you're a caretaker for your parents, and you're doing all of these things that take time for others, you deserve to put that time back for yourself to care for yourself and cooking or preparing food is just an offshoot of that care. Right. And some of the things that are, you know, we would classify under like that self-care umbrella, they actually give you time back, right? When you go for a walk outside and suddenly have so much more clarity and feel less stress, your day is going to be so much better. So the half hour you spent walking is going to come back tenfold. Mm. And the same thing I think happens with cooking too. You know, you get that time where you get to relax, you get to not think about your to-do list and you connect with your family or other people in your life. And so that nourishes you and provides you with, I mean, with so much more than like you, the DoorDash or whatever else. And it isn't all or nothing. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. So you had mentioned that Friday night. Well, maybe someone's not observant of Shabbat, but Friday night is always, if you have a regular job, that's an, a really great way to wind down from the week, right? And it's like, okay, so this is sort of the the entryway into the weekend. You know, mm-hmm. let's put the busy work week aside and now's our time to like just be or to relax. And I think also it with cooking, if you have that, it's a chore, mentality, it's a chore. But if it's like, this is an opportunity to have fun or to, you know, learn new things or to, you know, show love or whatever you want to say. And that that's the energy that's going to go into it. You literally stole the (laughs) word out of my mouth because as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, the, the point that I would love to bring up is tying back to your initial point of mindset is that it really is a mindset. And when you think of cooking or preparing food or meals as a chore, then it becomes punishing as opposed to thinking of this as an opportunity for time with your family or an opportunity to feed. And in in those sense, in that sense, it becomes nourishing. And so just such a, it's a tweak, right? But it changes everything. It's amazing how the way we talk to ourselves and the way that we frame things will completely change the experience. I was, I posted in an Instagram story today, my, just a little snippet of my run. And I said, you know, I don't have to move my body. I get to move my body. Right. Right. Whoa, how lucky. And that's like someone, you know, I've heard people talk about like 
you wake up every day, like instead of I'm getting older, right? Like I'm here, I have this opportunity. Those mindset shifts make all the difference. And you can do that about anything. For a long time on the Health by Podcast, I shied away from talking about weight, even though that's what I do. I'm mm -hmm. a weight loss physician and we can get into this. But yes, I would talk yes. about mindset and, you know, people would ask me, why are you as a physician talking about mindset? And it's true that I prescribe medications and it's true that I recommend, you know, or provide dietary guidance based on data. But all of that is useless if we don't have the right mindset, right? Because invariably we're going to get off track. Invariably we're going to have a moment, a distraction, a interruption in our flow. And if we don't have the mindset that allows us to get back in the game, then the doctor can be prescribing whatever the heck she wants. And it's not going to make a bit of difference because the mindset is not there. Mm -hmm. You know, I agree with all of that too, but you're talking about being afraid to talk, to mention weight loss. I mean, okay. How ironic is that? <laughs> That's actually what you do, but you don't want to talk about it. Can we, can we discuss this? Because yes, we, would... you were a guest on my, my, my podcast. And we talked about that tension between diet culture and anti-diet culture. It is something that I take really personally. You know, we were talking earlier about how even you, when you met me or when we met, you were surprised that I was a weight loss physician because it was so antithetical to what you thought about maybe a weight loss doctor. And, and you weren't too keen to t use those words either, weight loss at the time. Exactly. I think I even probably shied away from putting it in the title of the episode. Well, can I give some, I need to give a little reference here. Please so, do. Well, first of all, I knew exactly what you did, you know, and that you had a very, you, I mean, you have a huge, practice, but you also had a very big responsibility when you were head of weight loss at Cedars, right? And which is, by the way, where I was born. I don't know if I told you that. So full circle. And I only weighed four pounds, two ounces. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, weight no. loss, yeah. So the thing is, is that we know diet culture is harmful, right? We know that, you know, so many of us have been bombarded with messages that make us feel like we should look a certain way or we're not good enough as we are. That's harmful. That's a given. Agreed. Then on, on the other side of the spectrum, there's anti-diet culture, which is really love yourself how you are, which we do agree, love and compassion. We're on the same page with this is, you know, the way forward, but that doesn't mean you can't want to improve. And I think what has happened is that there are a lot of people who feel shame about wanting to lose weight because they keep hearing you should love yourself, you should accept yourself. And then they feel bad about wanting to lose the weight, even if they have really valid, not diet culture related reasons. And so there's this tension and both sides create a problem, I think. And I Absolutely. love where, yeah, yeah, and I love where you come in. And this is why I guess I felt prey to some of the anti-diet culture conversation, which I'm really glad that anti-diet culture exists, but I think that the, that it does, it's sh that people, the problem, the inherent problem is that people are feeling bad about their desire to lose weight. And even if they have all the right reasons, which you explore in your book, your amazing book, Hungry for More. So I 
wasn't sure I wanted to have you on my podcast because I was really <laughs> concerned about like, oh my gosh, all my colleagues are, you know, I'm talking about weight loss. But now when I can step back, it's like the elephant in the room. There are so many people who want to lose weight, who want to lose, don't want to lose weight because they think they should, but they know they m will feel better or they want to live longer and there's medical reasons or, you know, whatever. I'm, I've changed my position, I guess. And I love the work that you do. And I, I don't think weight loss should be taboo at all. And, but I do think the why is very important. And I think that it's hard to look inside, but people should ask themselves, why do I want this and have a clear reasoning? And then there's this question that one of my podcast guests asked, and it's such a good one. And I know that you'll love it. It's what is my conditioning versus what is my truth? Is someone coming to you as their weight loss physician because they have seen all the ads and feel like they should look like that? Or is their truth really like, this is something that'll make, that I want this feeling. Like I want the feeling of, of being able to move better and know that I'm doing the best things for my health and all of that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that the impetus for this movement was probably pure and it was to address the unfortunate shame around our weight, our bodies and our food. And that's messaging that we've we've all suffered from. None of us are immune. And as a, as a child, as a young adult, as a teen, I've certainly have not been under a rock. I've experienced that same right barrage of negative reinforcement but to say that you shouldn't lose weight is not addressing the shame at all and if in fact is actually adding to the shame and i'll tell you something as a child who was young and who was struggling with my weight i think i would i mean i never went to anybody to have this conversation there was no one to guide me and advise me but if i had gone somewhere and they told me a, a professional had told me no, everything's okay. When I was binging on chocolate and you're just fine, I would have been insulted and confused. I don't think it's, it's, it's actually insulting people's intelligence to say, Hey, you think you're, you're not treating your body, right? No, that's just in your head to love your body. And the real truth is that loving yourself and loving your body is not mutually exclusive from wanting to do better. Right. right? Yeah. And in fact, positive self-acceptance, which I explore this concept in Hungry for More, is a predictor of healthy habit change. So if you approach the change from a place of self-acceptance, which is, mm, you know, I gained 10 pounds, 20 pounds, whatever, during COVID, um, you know, I understand circumstances were hard. I was having a hard time and I accept myself and I have compassion for where I am and was in that moment. And now I am going to gather the tools to make the changes that will make me feel good. And by yeah. the way, those changes that are good for your physical health and will help you shed the weight are also good for your mental, emotional health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that you honed in on how you want to feel because I feel at the end of the day, you know, when I grew up so much was focused on looks 
you know, but I think when you, when it comes down to it, most of our goals or things that we want to accomplish or ways that we want to self-improve are about achieving a certain feeling, Mm. you know, and feeling good, feeling healthy, feeling strong, feeling, you know, all those things need to be part of the equation. Yeah. I also say, I also share uh, in the book and I, I share with my patients too. um, You know, a lot of times people will say, if I were just X, then I would be Y. If I would just Mm -hmm. lost 20 pounds, then I would be happy. And it is so untrue. I know this from working with patients. I know this from the data. I know this from personal experience that you can be just as miserable at size two as you were at size 10. If you, you know, if, if you don't acknowledge that self-acceptance piece, mm-hmm. you can't like what, hate, hate yourself right into, in, into, into that. change. Like, you can yeah, bully yourself. Change. Yeah. 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 You can't bully. Yeah. I love using that word bully because so many of us unfortunately bully ourselves, but it's true. I call that the, if, when, or then, when phenomenon, you know, what, but it, it's so true. And also if you want to make the journey enjoyable or else it's not going to be sustainable, you, you don't want to pick, you know, movement that makes you feel crappy and, you know, that you like dread doing every single day, you know? And so, and the same thing with the, with the weight loss or the cooking or anything that we're talking about, like there are so many different options and ways to get to where you want to go. And so I think it's really important to be connected enough to your body, which is a huge problem because when we have all those messages coming to us from diet culture and the media, that it does disconnect us from listening to our bodies. But when you are connected and you know what feels good to you, then you can enjoy the journey. And when you get there, I don't know if there is an ever a there, right? Is there a there? Yeah, I, I know. I think it's a... I think it's always a work in progress. And, and again, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking that I would hate for the message to the message to be that, you know, if you're really doing the things that you love, that you're always going to love it. You know, I love moving my body. I know that when I don't do it, I'm really irritable and I did it every day. Well, I did it regularly, let's say during the pandemic and you know, had my 10 pound weight gain despite moving my body daily, but still knowing that I love it and it's good for my emotional health and for my mood. I don't necessarily wake up every day and like bounce out of bed and into my tennis shoes. And so I think that people also need to understand or be okay with the fact that it's okay to not feel, you know, Mary Poppins about all your healthy behaviors or self-care habits all the time you know that's yeah that's realistic that's true but you you know if you're constantly like looking at your watch during your workout or you're making excuses or you dread it then you know but I agree with you not this is where I have a little issue with you have to like listening to your body when it comes to certain things when it comes to like where the big picture is going to help you move the needle forward towards your goal. So how do you know if you're just be, I don't like even using judgments, but if it's because you're not inspired, I want to use the word lazy, but that's not what I want to use. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking about a workout Yeah. versus 
whether you really actually, your body's telling you not to do it. There's a difference, right? And I think that this comes back to being connected enough to your body because you know in your head when you're like trying to talk yourself out of something right. versus when you actually just maybe you're about to get sick or some other reason, or you just don't, you know, like there's a real valid reason why you wouldn't go. And I think that you have to really know yourself. If mine is like, I don't feel like getting out of bed, it's cold, right? Then I think about my future self, like, and the rest of my day is going to go so much better. I'm not going to be irritable, like you mentioned, if I, you know, do that. Or the same thing can come with your food choices too. I, there's so many things I want to say. The first of which is, you know, discerning between what your body is telling you and what your mind is telling you, because you could have had one of those weeks where you had insomnia or your dog or your kids kept you awake. And so now you've had four hours of sleep and you're just like, I physically can't get up this morning. And I think, you know, I have a past where I used to push through that, you know, and say, no, you got to get up. And I don't think that's okay. But that's different from the voice in your head that tries to, you know, lure you out of doing what's right for you. And if we can lean into that a little bit, uh, we can also sometimes figure out where that voice is coming from. And oftentimes that voice is really trying to keep you in a place of safety stemming from a fear of failure. So that I'm speaking to all of the, I'm not athletic enough. I'm not this and I'm not flexible enough. I'm not a runner. I'm not a Pilates girl, you know, all those right, stories right, that right. we tell ourselves. And, and because we feel intimidated by that, by the labeling that we've put on ourselves, when we try and get ourselves out of our comfort zone by doing something like that, that voice comes in and says, no, Adrian, come back into bed right? because it's trying right. to keep you somewhere safe. So I think if I were in those moments to say, oh, my body want, you know, I'm listening to my body. No, that is not my body. That is my mind creating right. stories to keep me safe. And, and so you're right. You have to really be attuned to, to discern or distinguish between those things. Right. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to, to do that. Like, and that's another message out there that I have an issue with. You do have to listen to your body, of course, but you have to be tuned in enough to know whether it's really your body speaking or, you know, some, something else, like, like you said, trying to keep you safe. So, um, I know you're, you do a lot of, you know, you have your own podcast, you have written the book food story, you have a course that's coming out. What are some of the threads that you think are really impactful? You mentioned how even in your work as a uh, immigration attorney, your job, your, your why was to help people. What do you think are the threads that are common to the work that you do or, and the content that you put out there that you think would really be helpful in, in shifting the tide on this conversation around food? I came up with this concept of calling it a food story. And I want to go to that because you mentioned my podcast is once upon a food story. My courses, rewrite your food story. My book is food story. So that is definitely the common theme here. And I started thinking about how we relate to food as a story, because, you know, when I first started doing the work, I only talked about food. It was like, let me help you with what's on your plate. And, you know, you can get a little, you know, make a little bit of progress. But as we know now, both of us, that 
there's so much more to the equation. And so I was really excited to bring in other elements, the mind, you know, mindset and, you know, just soul nourishment and ask people about their relationship with food. This is back in like 2012 and 13. People had the same responses. They would like shrug their shoulders or be like, oh gosh, that's so complicated. Let's not go there. Or, oh my God, don't even get me started. And I think that the problem was that when you say your relationship with food, it was like this, you and food. And that was the end of the story. I knew that I had to make it a bigger conversation because as we discussed with messages and you'd brought up right at the beginning, your family and your, you know, the legacy that your mom, you know, leaving all of you, that there's so much more that goes into food and how you relate to it. And I'm purposely staying away from the terms relationship with food because it, it, it I don't know, to me, this, I don't want it. It's not synonymous to your food story and your relationship with food. And so when I started asking people, tell me about your food story, there was a whole different response, like food story. I never really thought about it. Do I have a food story? And we all have a food story. So the story, the reason it's a story is, you know, it's all the meals that you've had, the messages you've received from the media and from your parents and from influential people in your life. You know, it's, you have different chapters, like you mentioned something about earlier about what works for you right now, you know, like that it might not be the same thing. Um, but we have different chapters. We're constantly evolving. Our taste is changing our circumstances, our hormones, our health, you know, so there's, and there's villains. We mentioned diet culture, but there are others, you know, who probably play a role and then there's heroes, you know? And so our, when we start to look at the way that we connect, we relate, we talk about food, it's so much more dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. And what I found is that when we open up the conversation, when people start thinking about it as a story, it also helped lift a lot of the shame and the blame because it suddenly became about so much more than just them and food, mm. right? And yeah. so you can say, you know, aha, this is why I do things. When you start thinking back on your story and making, connecting the dots about the messages you receive from the media or like the, I think you mentioned this on the podcast episode, but like what reading all the magazines growing up, you know, I'm mm -hmm. feeling like I don't look like them. Mm -hmm. So it it's just, it's a way to, to talk about food that's, and you and food that's so much more interesting and and, you know, food is a thread that, I mean, we, it's part of our culture, it's part of our family culture, and we have to eat, right? Mm. So you might as well write the best story that you could possibly write. Yeah, because it literally is what sustains us. Yeah, I love all of that so much. I really, it really resonates. I love the idea of of using that term also to separate yourself a little bit. I mean, it is so, as we discussed, it's so integral to us. And, and I even shared my own food story as being ingrained in my DNA at the beginning of our conversation. Right. So it is so integral, but I like that the way that you use the word story to create a little bit of distance so that people can not define themselves by it, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Also, like I am, no, you're a, a lot of chapters 
and, you know, different threads and themes, you know, something that you do really, really well. And which is so huge in your book, Hungry for More, is you share a lot of stories. I really, like, I love that you do that. And I think it's really important for us to share our food story. And that doesn't mean, you know, someone has to come on a podcast or write a book, but the more that we can talk about what's the positive parts, but also some of the parts that we struggle with, Hmm. the more we're able to heal. And in your book, like someone may not like identify every detail about your patient's story, but it might help them remember their own. Mm-hmm. And so when you share your story, it also helps like you step back and kind of put it together because a lot of it is kept inside and we don't know. So we don't really realize it. Writing my book was very cathartic in understanding my own food story. Right. And that's the other thing. I'm a huge, huge believer in writing, yes. you know, writing your feelings, writing how something you know, how you responded to something, writing out like the way you talk to yourself, giving yourself distance and then coming back to it when the you're not in the heat of the moment and saying, is this really kind and loving in a way I want to talk to myself? So writing is is huge and you can write snippets of your story at different points in time and it's very, very healing to release it. You know, I think I've shared with you that I started writing in a journal when I was seven years old or six years old, and I started doing something actually, and you'll see funny enough, right next to me, I have, you're seeing the recording. I have all these journals, right? Wow. So some time ago I was speaking to somebody and she was going through a hard time. I thought, you know, gosh, she would really, I think, benefit from writing and getting this all down and it could be really healing for you. And I bought her a journal and she was so grateful. And then, you know, six months passed and I was getting my nails done and there was somebody um, that was an acquaintance and we were talking and, And again, I was like, you know, I really feel like you would benefit. And so I bought her a journal. And so now I have this kind of um, personal journal project. I went and purchased (laughs) all of these journals. I I have a goal that every month I'll share a journal with somebody who I feel like is really open and would benefit from using it. Because like you, I do believe that writing is so therapeutic and cathartic. So I think that's a great take home message for people. Grab a journal and start writing. Wow. And I love that, that you're being so intentional with it and giving it to people who like come into your, your life or space, you know, and you're like, this is, this will really help them. That's yeah. a cool project. It, it kind of is. I'm enjoying it. So I feel like it could be a movement in some way. Well, let's hashtag it. <laughs> okay. Share your journal. All right. We'll think about it, but it's true. It is. That is such a gift because it's also a gift that keeps on giving, right? Absolutely. So- they can use it, you know, for however long. I love that. Yeah. Well, I love this conversation, Elise. It's so nice to connect and to talk about these issues. I feel like it's of benefit to people who are listening and it's of benefit to myself. It's a great reminder always. So thank you for spending this time with me. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for having me. And also like, thank you for all the work that you do. You know, I'm inspired by you and I, I love, I don't I just, I love that you're really connected to the emotional component of weight loss. It's very unique. Appreciate that. I'm sure that our guests are going to want to 
connect with you, know more about you, take advantage of all of your wonderful offerings. So let us know how we can find you. Okay, so my website is my name, which is elisemucellus.com. I'm assuming you'll have it in the show notes. I will for and sure. And then um, I'm most active on Instagram, which is, is that where we met? That's so crazy. No, we met because I listened to you on another podcast, I think. Oh, I thought it was oh, Instagram. No, you know what? This is really cool because I feel like it's just so telling of how connected we are. I had just listened to you on another podcast and you appeared in my, and I was thinking, I'm really interested in this, you know, this doctor, Dr. Adrian and her work. And then you showed up in my DMs. It was like, and I said to you, I'm like, she's going to think I'm lying. Like, oh my gosh, I just was thinking that I needed to connect with you. So um, anyways, I'm most active on Instagram. And that's also my name at Elise Mucellus. I have a book. We talked about food story. Everyone should tune into your episode on Once Upon a Food Story, my podcast. And then I have a new course, Rewrite Your Food Story. So lots of food story content. Yeah, it's great. I love all of it. Well, again, thank you for this wonderful conversation and let's do it again soon. All right. Thanks so much, Adrian. All right. Bye now. Bye.